Good morning. Welcome to the Mendocino County Fire Safe Council Radio Hour. We are so excited to be back with another limited edition uh, in this three-part series. Today is election day, so be sure you vote. And we will be back again on June 21st. So today, I am here with Executive Director of the Mendocino Fire Safe Council, Scott Craddy. Welcome, Scott. Morning, everyone. And I'm Elizabeth Archer. I also work with the Fire Safe Council and am delighted to be hosting a different show. You usually hear me on the Farm and Garden Show. Um, and we have a very special guest today. We have Yana Valakovic. Yana is the County Director and Forest Advisor for the University of California Cooperative Extension in Humboldt and Del Norte Counties. Yana is a registered professional forester, forest science. She is the co-lead of the Northern California region of the California Fire Science Consortium. And she is a founding member of the Northern California Prescribed Fire Council. Wow. Welcome, Yana. Well, good morning. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So today we're going to have a very um, interesting and meaty, dare I say, conversation about six steps for getting ready for wildfire season, which includes home hardening and, um, you know, the different sort of types of fire that we're starting to see in California and how really no two fires are the same. And um, these two, Yana and Scott, know way more than I do, so I'm mostly going to be quiet. But if they start talking about something that doesn't make sense to me as sort of a just regular human who hasn't studied fire, I'll jump in and maybe that can help us all gain a better understanding. So take it away, Scott. Okay, thank you, Elizabeth. Um, yeah, and I just want to start by um, thanking Yana for coming, um, spending some time with Mendocino again, uh, despite her her title that says Humboldt and Del Norte. Um, if you go to our website, which everyone should do, uh, firesafemendocino.org, and you look under Safeguarding Your Home, you'll see that we have a, um, a home hardening video series that breaks it down into little steps. And we were super fortunate to have Yana help us produce that. So it's a, a great resource for everyone that's out there. Um, and I just want to start by saying, so, you know, Yana's got a wide range of experience. I noticed um, a bunch of studies of sudden oak death um, that, that she's been involved with. That's certainly an issue that's going to roll into our future wildfire scenario planning. Um, but it seems lately, Yana, you know, you've been doing a really deep dive into working on how to help us all adapt better to wildfire. What what led you to that focus? Yeah, that's a great question. That's certainly where I've been putting most of my energy over the last five or six years. Um, you know, being an extension agent means that we're always working on new topics and trying to help the community and the communities we serve, you know, address the problems and challenges of the time. And um I, my training's really in forestry and forest ecology, uh, but I've always had a strong interest in, in wildfire. My dad um, started a uh, wildland fire accidentally uh, when I was about nine with a weed whacker and a metal blade, and I was the only one home and couldn't get the pump running, and it led to, I don't know, about a 150-acre fire and burned down my neighbor's couple of their outbuildings. Oh, no. Uh, so that was an early moment, um, and I was also living in Oakland during the Oakland Hills fire, um, and that was pretty formative. And, you know, fast forward into becoming an extension agent, you know, we're always working on new topics and trying to understand new issues. And um, 
I started picking up topics that my colleagues worked on, like Dr. Steve Quarles, who uh, is also a really key contributor to those video series and really one of the, the true founders in California's fire policy and, and guidance that has gotten us to this point. And um, so Steve had a project to, to look at uh, building durability and we were doing some wildfire preparedness uh, classes and we'd host a workshop and we'd get like five or six people. They're usually from the volunteer fire department and, you know, we sort of talk to ourselves in an echo chamber and it really wasn't, it was, you know, it was great work, but it wasn't rewarding to the community. Um, Steve retired and went to work for the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety and kind of left me in the place to keep some of the topics going and, and keep um, sort of extending his work uh, once he went to this amazing research lab where he could move from studying small components on houses to working in a lab big enough that you could build a whole building inside the lab and then um, challenge the, the building to different types of fire exposures um, and really started helping, I think, our nation think differently about uh, wildfire preparedness uh, in the built environment. And then, uh, you know, so I've been sort of noodling around, maybe it's a long-winded story, but uh, the, the Tubbs fire kicked off and the Redwood Valley fire kicked off. And I remember just being paralyzed by looking at the drone imagery that was coming out and realizing that it was the, it was the same story. The vegetation wasn't really involved, but the homes were all involved. And, you know, this idea that our homes are really the most combustible part of the landscape um, seemed really important. And, and I just, you know, I kept listening to the stories about how we're supposed to manage these issues. And it was one of just, well, if we only had more fuel breaks, if we only had done this in the, in the wildland, then this wouldn't have happened. And, you know, that's not entirely true. Um, there's a lot that we do in the wildland that's important for managing average wildfires and, you know, where we can do direct attack. Uh, and, and, you know, do suppression very effectively. But when we get wind behind a fire, um, that's when we start seeing the long distance movement of embers and the condition of the building becomes really critical to being able to be robust to that kind of fire exposure. So I've been kind of all in ever since then trying to help California, help the communities of the North Coast and other communities throughout California sort of understand the, the multi-pronged approach that's needed to address our, our wildfire challenge at the time. So that's what got me there. <laughs> Yeah, it's a lot of fantastic work, and the um, you know, in terms of in terms of saving uh, lives and property, that's certainly one of the one of the main messages of the Mendocino County Fire Safe Council is uh, is the working from working from the home out um, mm -hmm. approach, um, which you've you've been a real champion of. Um, and speaking of championing issues, so Elizabeth mentioned you're on the California Fire science consortium and you're probably on a few other working groups out there um what kinds of policy issues are front and center at the moment what's 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 being worked on there's a lot <laughs> what's in where do i even start here um so yes i do participate in some science groups like the california fire science consortium you know where we try and make um the latest fire science understandable and translatable to to everyday you know californians um, but then I'm also quite involved in the governor's wildfire and resilience task force in, in multiple roles. Um, but really the policy piece for me is that as a forester and as a scientist, I've had to do a lot of translation of science to um, think about the forest practice rules and where we can sort of adapt the forest practice rules to current understandings. And that's got me um, 
fairly conversant and comfortable working in that policy arena. But we've just seen over the last five years, just, you know, a groundswell of, um, of bills and strategies to try and address the wildfire challenge, you know, culminating in the governor's commitment to $1.5 billion investment in, in wildfire prevention, which is really, really significant. Um, and then conversely, you know, trying to turn many dials from prescribed fire to um, home hardening to um, the uh, the various different mapping technologies that we use to be able to evaluate hazard and maybe translate that to risk to the insurance market um, to defensible space and guidance around defensible space um, to zoning and planning and building. I mean, there's there's been a whole lot that's happening across the board, and I think. The hard part is it's you know a lot of that we don't see yet um the 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 pillars are being formed right now and the investments are starting um and i think you all in the mendocino fire safe council have really been a great champion of this work and you're uh starting to receive i think rather significant sources of funds to do fuel reduction and do some of the home hardening and, and help our vulnerable communities so those are some examples of kind of how those those dollars and policies are starting to to roll out yeah, Elizabeth just managed for us or is in the process of managing for us what I think was one of the first um, retrofitting grants where we've got a, a grant in progress to help people replace those old wooden roofs. Maybe we'll get to how important that is coming up soon. Uh -huh. But um, So of the of the things those groups are working on, I mean, what would be the, like, if, if you had the magic wand and you could make a, a policy or two happen tomorrow, what would what would be the things that are the most urgent? Well, there's a lot of things that are urgent. Um, <laughs> I mean, we've been trying to fix the liability and claims fund associated with prescribed fire, um, and I think we've got some really good headway on on that and that element, and really are starting to uh, solve some of those pieces. Um, jury's still out whether we get the true investment in that claims fund, which is which is critical. The insurance piece. Uh, is just a real bugaboo and um, related to both, you know, working with fire uh, and being a practitioner of fire all the way to the homeowner side and, the, you know, business side, trying to be able to maintain a fire policy. Um, there's a lot of smart folks that are trying to work in that space. There's, and there really isn't a clean solution yet um, to, to see there. I would love to be able to, to turn that wand and, and get a better understanding of what's behind the insurance formula and uh, risk evaluation. It's each, it's very opaque. You don't get to, to, to see what's behind that. So I'd love to fix that. Um, I'd also really love to fix uh, being able to have both state and federal dollars uh, better available to help um, those in most need uh, upgrade their infrastructure. And, you know, in the, in the brick, the build back America, that, did I say that right? The, the federal, uh, effort for infrastructure bill. Um, there, there's some there's some efforts there, but there are a bunch of barriers still that make it very hard to uh, bring those dollars on the ground. Um, but I mean, we know that that the condition of our homes, the condition of our communities in the in the built environment space, are really not prepared for wildfire exposure. And we've been, you know, singularly dependent upon a professional fighting force to be able to extinguish every blaze before it gets gets to our communities or have an engine, you know, at each each home and structure. And and 
the frequency and severity of wildfire exposures that we're experiencing totally eclipses that capacity. So how do we you know, supercharge basically the improvement of our buildings um, to, you know, to, to make it so it's possible to have some type of wildfire exposure without loss? Yeah, there are, um, I mean, yeah, there are, the, the one magic wand thing is a little unfair. We, we just did our uh, board strategic retreat um, a week or so ago. And one of the exercises we did was I just, I tossed out a list of everything it would be great for us to work on, everything that seemed important. And that ended up being a list of about 70 different things, some of which are huge, like home retrofitting and <laughs> You know, um, it was very hard to eliminate any of, of the priority areas. <laughs> yeah, obviously we can't work on 70 things. There's just a couple of us. Um, and there are some things, just to point out while we're at that, that are you know, maybe working a little retrograde, which, for example, in when Elizabeth was working on her grant, um, one of the huge barriers was the requirement for prevailing wage, which, um, which eliminated uh, the vast majority of people who can do this kind of work in a rural area like Mendocino County uh, and leaves us with a little bottleneck of a few. And there's a pending legislation right now, AB 1717, that would make all wildfire reduction work require um, require prevailing wage, which, um, you know, interestingly and, and perhaps uh, sadly would undo some of the things we're doing. Like one of the programs we're at working on at the moment, yeah, Mendocino is huge. Uh, it's spread out. Uh, we have a good crew, but it is completely inefficient for us to send them to Leggett and to Whale Gulch to, to do work. So, uh, you know, they lose a big chunk of the day doing that. So we're in the process of trying to roll out a program where we work with the local fire districts and get to pay some of those volunteer fire department uh, members to go out and do defensible space work for seniors. It has layers of benefits. It gets the gets them engaged with the community more. They get to go see places in advance and look at what the risks are. They get to know the area they're working in better. Uh, they get some pay that goes in in part into the fire districts and and helps those struggling districts. And you know all of that could go away if there has to be a prevailing wage uh, in those situations because fire districts aren't set up for all that paperwork. So for folks listening who don't know what prevailing wage is, because this is an issue that we saw certainly uh, with the grant that I was managing, which is a FEMA grant that goes through Cal OES. Um, it is a roof replacement grant. that It's a rebate program. So you get, I think it's 70% of the cost of your roof if you are, if your roof is an eligible class type and you live in an eligible area. Um, this grant is closed. So if you're getting, getting excited, I'm sorry, we're not taking applications, but it does require that the contractors that work on these program, on these roof repla replacements, pay their workers prevailing wage. Okay. So prevailing wage I think must be determined in, you know, Sacramento, where maybe folks are making way more money because cost of living is higher. I don't know. But most carpenters and roofers in Mendocino County are making between 30 and $50 an hour, which is, I think, a good wage. Uh, prevailing wage for carpenters, I believe, is 75 or $80 an hour. 
to to do these these roofs. And so it was really hard to find contractors who wanted to participate in this program because if you know you're typically paying your roofer $40 an hour and then on this one job you're going to pay them $80 an hour, naturally you've quoted that roof much higher that creates sort of a weirdness between like you're paying your employees one rate for one job and one rate for another. So Scott, do you know off the top of your head what the change in prevailing wage would be for the 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 crews that are doing fuel load reduction? Um, it's, yeah, it's significant. Um, it's, um, in, when we've done work with prevailing wage, we've ended up having to pay because you not only have to pay the people more and then you pay more workers comp and then you have to pay for all the administration to do the prevailing wage. So it ends up being in the 90 to a hundred dollars an hour, uh, that you're paying out, which radically cuts the amount of fuel reduction work that you can do because anyway. Yeah, um, so prevailing wage may not seem like a fire-related policy uh, legal issue, but it actually is. Um, so yeah, that's it's everything's connected. Yeah, well, I think I got <laughs> us off track a little bit, but um, you know that brings me to the next point, which is there really aren't simple prescriptions. It's all super complicated, and um, and a lot of it is contextual. I mean, we can look at and say what the most important thing is. The roof is the most exposed, so you want to start looking at your roof, for example. So there are some things that are obviously important, but there's also a lot that's really contextual. Um, and Yana, maybe you can you can kick us off talking about that a little bit, about how, how complex it is to sort of think through what's most important for you. Sure. Can, can I just tag on a little bit, I think, on the, that last piece and then come back to it? Um, just to say that I think there's a lot of state and federal programs that are trying to help us in this space, but they aren't necessarily designed to work in this space. And so there's a lot of green tape out there, uh, as we often call it, um, that um, is meaning well, um, but often becomes a stumbling block in the ability to deliver some of these programs. So, you know, to be specific, like the Federal Emergency Management Authority, FEMA, um, is one of the ones that is trying to help us in the in the home retrofitting space, but it triggers, using FEMA money triggers a whole lot of compliance issues that are well beyond the scope of what we're trying to achieve here. So if that prevailing wage conversation seemed a little tone deaf, please, please know it's not. It's really around, you know, how do we get the best dollars on the ground the quickest and most expeditiously possible to get the most work done? And all of us are on board with a living wage uh, payment, but um, trying to figure out that living wage in different communities is really complicated and um, becomes a barrier for for our delivery of some of this important work. Thank you for that clarification. I definitely am not advocating for folks not making a living wage. Right, exactly. <laughs> but I think, you know, I think a lot of people listening will hear $80, $90 an hour um, and also see that that is just, those are not realistic wages in, in the North Coast counties. Um, or maybe in other counties. I don't really know <laughs> what I mean, they're what they're paying in Sacramento, but you know, I do think about the workforce issue and whether we have the qualified and capable workforce in every community to do the work we need to do. And um, my gross observation across California is no. Um, we've got some places where there's great contractors that work in the space, and lots of places where there's just not enough. And it's a really ripe uh, market to to try and look at some business development and and expertise development to to work in the fuels reduction and the landscape management as well as in the home space. So if you're interested, please pursue conversation with any folks um, in your area that are working here because we, we need more people. Um, 
but coming back to your original question, Scott, around where do you start and how do you prioritize? Um, I think the first thing to think about is that most of us are prepared to try and manage the idea that a, a wildland fire is, is running at the, at the building. Um, we call that direct flame contact. And so we do a lot of fuel modification to, to make a safe place for uh, uh, the fire professionals to be able to defend the home. Um, that's typically called defensible space. And I like, like to think of it as defendable space. Um, and so with fuel modification, you can make it so that the flames uh, drop from the crowns of the trees or the, or the height of the, the, um, the bushes down to something that's you know, of, of low height and possible to put some crews on it and, and not get themselves um, harmed in that process. So we do fuel modification for that reason. Um, now, the other two types of exposures are really critical, um, and I think fewer people are aware of them. Um, one is embers, and we were, we were talking a little bit about that uh, a while ago, and that is the you know, movement through the air column, through the wind, of burning pieces of vegetation or parts of buildings. Um, and so you know, those, those embers are capable of long distance movement up to a mile or more if they're of woody source. Um, meaning that they're big enough that they can hang on uh, through that time and then um, smolder and re-extinct and, and then ignite a, a new um, spot fire out in front where they land. Um, or they can actually penetrate a building and move through an open window, a cat, uh, a cat or dog door, uh, or um, go through the vents, uh, which are important for air circulation. And then the third type of exposure is radiant heat. Uh, and I think of this uh, often uh, in, my, in my, my humble framing, which is, you know, it's, it used to be raining here at least, and you put your boots by the fire to try and dry them out. Um, and sometimes you hang your socks on the edge of them and uh, you've got the wood fire going and the socks sitting next to them. And it's possible to ignite those socks if you, um, if you put them too close, right? You don't actually have the, you know, the socks didn't touch the wood stove, but the heat exchange was sufficient enough to, to create a, um, heat transfer and, and ignition. Um, so how that works in the building side is if your shed or your garage or your neighbor's building ignites, you know, how strong are the windows to protect themselves against that heat transfer? And, and if they're not um, of double pane or if they're not tempered glass, which is three times more resistive than regular annealed glass, which is what we put in most of our buildings, then you can get window pane breakage and then um, you can get flames into the house. So when I try and talk to people about you know, how to prepare for wildfire, I'm thinking it in those three different, fr three different framings. The, the direct flame contact, how to mitigate that, the embers, how to make the building more resistive, and then the radiant heat component. So that's a lot of words. I start with the roof. Roof's where we start, right? Roof is the largest horizontal surface on the building, and it's, it's shouldering most of the um, resistance to weather, as well as resistance to uh, embers. Um, so if the roof's not in good shape, uh, then then there's a lot of there's a lot of work to do. Um, Scott, you want me to keep running for a minute, or? Um, sure. And let me actually just touch base on that. So one of our our last newsletter that I think went out like a week ago to subscribers had a link to a new study. Um, and um, Steve Quarles that you mentioned earlier is one of the authors and it's got behind it. Um, table A is a list of 40 different things to look at 
uh-huh. when you're doing home hardening. So it's like it, it looks like it's an attempt to be a pretty much comprehensive list of all the stuff you need to march through. Uh, and it certainly starts with the roof. But one thing that surprised me, and I, cause I think it's an attempt to be a prioritized list, is that the top thing on it is actually the skylight. Um, does, that, does that make sense, given what you know about approaching this? I mean, I, I guess I don't have the, the study in front of me, so um, I'm a little bit handicapped in that way. But the, you know, the roof is trying to do the majority of the, of the work for the building. And if the skylight is left open or if the skylight is uh, a domed plastic, um, it's not as resistive as, as the roof itself. Um, so, you know, the roof is more than just the roofing material. It's all the other components um, that appear on the roof. So there's vents there, there's the roof edge, um, there's roof to wall intersections, and then there's those, you know, penetrations like skylights. Um, all of those need to be in good working order um, to have a, a very strong and robust roof. And we kind of, I guess we're getting a little ahead because we're going we're gonna to be talking about home hardening coming up. Um, maybe you can back us up for a second and talk a little bit more about context before before we get into the the uh, the six steps that the, the fire safe council prepared um, maybe you can just give us a little bit of insight from some of these studies and and fires you've looked at recently um, starting with it was not too long ago that you were one of the authors of a study on the campfire um, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about what the findings were there yeah well let me just say that the the philosophical point that I'm trying to get to is what would it take for a building to be able to have some type of fire exposure and have minimal um, uh, response and still survive? And so, you know, we're, I think the, the work that I'm doing is really trying to look at what, what would be critical to make that occur. And, um, you know, between the building products, the installation and the maintenance, you know, where are the, where are the vulnerabilities and, and where are the small places that we can make um, some effort and, and put our buildings in better condition so that in the chance that there isn't a fire service available to help uh, that building during the time of exposure, that it will be able to withstand the fire on its own. Um, so in, in that light, uh, we looked at uh, the campfire, which was in paradise. Uh, it was, as you know, on a very windy day, uh, definitely wind driven, very much ember driven. Um, and we were curious because the whole town burned down in, in essentially 12 hours and the fire personnel and emergency personnel were focused on getting everybody out uh, and evacuating. And, you know, there was a relatively little suppression work on the buildings themselves, which made a rather perfect study uh, in essence, which sounds really cold and heartless, but not meant to be, of course, we're, but, you know, we're never going to do an experiment where we burn half a town down and see what happens, right? But in this case, we could look retrospectively at Paradise to try and understand if there were some unique qualities about the buildings themselves that made them uh, more capable of, of uh, or being more robust to fire exposure. And what was unique about Paradise is that there were a population of 142 homes, single family homes that were built after the adoption of uh, exterior building codes uh, for wildfire resistance. And so um, we were curious, did those building codes make a difference? And the answer is that uh, survivability increases definitely during the last two decades. So the last, homes that are 20 years older, 20, you know, zero to 20 years older, survived much better than anything prior to that period. 
So our older homes fared very poorly. Um, and the, so the question is, is that because they were not as well maintained or the service life of their roofs were getting to the end? You know, we buy roofs at 20, 30, and 40 years. So if it's a 50 year old home, did you have a new roof? Did you have an old roof? What, what condition were you in? Um, there's not pre, no, we didn't have a, a uh, assessment of every home before um, the fire happened, but we were able to just look at, you know, era of construction. Um, and what we saw was that there's definitely an improving trend of performance um, and chapter 7a that exterior construction codes uh, had a noticeable improvement but not statistically significant improvement for survival. Um, and, and that's, I guess, to me, not a depressing moment. It really actually says, well, what are the vulnerabilities that ex were experienced in paradise and where are the opportunities for improvement? And the California Building Code that was adopted in 2008 is updated every three years. And so <clears> it's, it's really a living uh, building code. Uh, and we're in the update process right now. So our work helps uh, inform some of that discussion around where the improvements might be. And there are some limitations in the previous code around radiant heat. And so we're seeing more, um, more focus uh, around how to address radiant heat in that future code. Um, but what we really did learn uh, in Paradise, and here's kind of the punchline, is that, and, and this is not meant to be defeating at all, but it's really to say that community matters and that we all need to work together because the, the best predictor of survival or loss of an individual building was basically the distance to and the number of um, burn structures within, the, the number of burn structures within your perimeter and the distance to the nearest destroyed structure was the strongest predictor of loss. So if your neighbor's building stayed intact, that had a huge impact on your building staying intact. If your neighbor's building went down, your building likely went down. Um, and that has to do with the radiant heat issue as well as the creation of more construction related embers. So where communities can really bundle and work together, it makes a huge difference. And these homes are on larger lots. They're well spaced from each other. Um, it, it's very uh, analogous, I think, to how we live in the North Coast. It's not tight, dense neighborhoods like you would see in Coffee Park in Santa Rosa. These are uh, more suburban communities and more quasi-rural communities. Um, so you know, density uh, becomes a problem at a certain point once you start having uh, individual buildings ignite. I'd like to take a moment to reintroduce us. This is the Mendocino County Fire Safe Council Radio Hour. We are coming to you with a three-part limited series. Today is election day, so be sure to get out and vote. We will be back with you on June 21st for the third in our series. Today's show has Executive Director of the Fire Safe Council, Scott Craddy, in conversation with Yana Valakovic, who is the County Director and Forest Advisor for the University of California Cooperative Extension in Humboldt and Del Norte counties. We are talking about wildfire behavior, wildfire safety, home hardening, defensible space, and we talked a little bit earlier in the hour about policy and what's happening at the state level. So if you're just joining us, welcome to what is a very uh, good and interesting and also, you know, hard conversation because this is the reality that we all live in. We all live in 
a fire prone state, even if you're on the coast, even if you're in, you know, Humboldt or Del Norte counties, traditionally a little bit, you know, wetter and cooler. Everything basically is a fire zone now in California. So um, bummer for sure. But we're learning more and more about how we can, you know, sort of coexist in this fire prone universe that we have you know created and are part of and um that's that's our reintroduction so i'll let you keep going scott yeah and yeah yana's work is definitely very much about how we how we adapt to our our homes and our landscapes so that when that inevitable wildfire comes your home is more likely to to do well and survive um and so um, that was just just did a recap of of some learnings from the campfire um, and to super shortly recap that it sounded like you know what what things jumped out at the top of what matters is how relatively new your home is and um, how up to date the construction is and also um, where it is in relation to neighboring structures um, and how well those neighboring structures are maintained um, you've also been out recently and looked at the Marshall Fire in Colorado. Uh, were there any mm-hmm. different observations from that experience? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the point about the campfire is that 20-year-old homes, uh, for the most part, their roofs are still within their service life. And so, you know, there's a lot to be said for um, the wear and tear that happens on buildings over time. And so newer homes generally are in a little bit better shape just because they're not as old yet. <laughs> Um, the, the, the Marshall fire was really interesting. You all might remember that one. It kicked off um, December 31st. It was uh, in Boulder, Colorado and surrounding um, communities. And, you know, it's on the backside of the Rocky Mountains and the plains. Uh, it's in a grassland condition. Um, it burned for 12 hours, wind driven, uh, uh, winds up to 100 miles per hour, pretty sustained around 60 uh, and basically gets extinguished with a snowfall. Uh, that's so a 12 hour period ending in snowfall and what what was interesting to me about that fire um, was that we really didn't see a single home that survived on its own Um, they were all pretty much surviving homes and the transition between damaged destroyed uh, was really a story of some kind of intervention Um, so the homes weren't in a condition that they could maintain uh, and and resist uh, wildfire exposures it was grassland fire, um, not a place where there's a lot of overstory trees. Uh, it's a grassland environment. But because of that, uh, people use wooden fences to create privacy because it's a big open plain. And what we saw was grassland ignition uh, spread through grassland, embers in grass, which are not long lived, they don't travel very far, uh, but they would run into fences. And at the base of the fence often was a little bit of leaf litter or some debris or some wooden mulch and you get ignition at the base of the fence, uh, then that would be sufficient to get the fence um, on fire, the wooden fence, and then the wooden fence would carry the fire to the house. And then you'd have direct fire exposure to the edge of the house. And uh, once you've got flame you know, touching the house, there's usually a vulnerable way, a vulnerable place and a way for fire to, to get inside. So um, the story in, in the Marshall Fire was really about the fact that people have connected wooden fences, meaning that the fence you know, provides this great you know, backyard privacy, but it wraps and touches the house. Um, and so th- it's a pretty simple solution in that case, which is to uh, put the attachment point with something non-combustible. So it could be a metal gate. Um, it could be you know, some kind of decorative uh, transition point that's 
um, some kind of block or um, you know involve some other piece of non-combustible material. Uh, so you know the idea that every fire has a different flavor. Um, so that one to me was about fences. It wasn't about um, it wasn't about um, gutters like we saw in Paradise. It wasn't about um, you know the the elements that you would see in a forested environment. And then last week I was down in Southern California and I had a chance to go look at that coastal fire, which was in, near the Laguna Beach area, which was a chaparral um, wildland fire that burned up, up a steep canyon and uh, punched up at the top of a series of um, homes at the top of, the, uh, of a plateau. And in that case, that was a fire of embers uh, and embers penetrating vents in the attic. Um, and so while the flaming front had long gone, what happened about a half an hour later, all of a sudden there were uh, smokes coming out of the top of each of these buildings because the wind had carried embers into the vents uh, in the um, in the attic and all of a sudden we had fire inside the buildings. So every fire has a slightly different signature. Every you know construction, uh, every community that fire uh, touches has sort of a different style of construction and perhaps a different vulnerability. And I guess what I'm trying to do is help people see those vulnerabilities and give people tools to figure out what they can do to mitigate that. So in the case of the coastal fire down in Southern California, upgrading their vents to something that is eighth inch mesh and maybe flame resistant, I think would have done the trick. Um, it would have made a huge difference. In, in, in the um, Marshall fire, really disconnecting gates from buildings would have made a, a significant difference. Um, and I think, you know, there were, if, you know, as simple as that, I'm just gonna start, stop there. Uh, in paradise, you know, having a little bit more uh, understanding of radiant heat exposures uh, and also disconnecting gates from houses, all of that um, would have made a difference too. So, you know, thinking about what type of fire you're likely to have in your own community and what the particular vulnerabilities are for your building um, is not a completely formularic, um, but there are some sort of key key concepts around each of each of those issues. Right, and then the more you understand about those things, think for example, in most places in Mendocino County, um, out in the Wooey, at least things are far enough apart that define Wooey. The wildland urban interface. Not uh, everybody knows it. Still, we'll get there. We will get there. Um, you know. Embers are, are probably the main risk in most places. However, there, there's a lot of context that I think people can get out of here. When we're looking at buildings, we look at, you know, if the woodshed is on one side, um, then and you can't afford to you can't afford to replace all of your windows and do all of your siding, but you may want to do it on that side, um, since you know you've got a significant chance of radiant heat in context given where where buildings are you know where structures are related to your building so uh, you can make some sort of smart choices about where to focus your resources if they're somewhat limited when you understand the different ways that fire can get to your building ultimately um, anything you want to put in to wrap up that segment before we move on to the to sort of walking people through the the framework we've got for getting ready for this wildfire season yeah, I, I, I guess I'll just close to say that I think uh, that these are achievable, there are achievable solutions, and it just takes a little time to, to dig into the materials and understand what 
the specific issues are in your particular property. And a lot of what we're talking about is not expensive and it can be phased in over time. Um, and you know, I think Scott and his team can, can help you walk through that. There's a lot of great resources, both on Scott's website and others throughout the state um, that can try and walk, you know, walk through the, the assessment and sort of where the particular challenges are. For me, I just think about three things when I start condition of the roof, uh, the vegetation and the defensible space immediately around the house. Is there anything that is fuel immediately around the house? Um, and then the vents themselves and upgrading those vents so that they resist embers. And that can be really the simple addition of one eighth metal uh, mesh screen that can be um, you know, added to your existing vents, either over the top from the outside or on the inside. Um, if you can do those three things, um, huge chance of, of likelihood of success should your home have a wildfire exposure. Great. And while we're talking about the most important things, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit again, because you, you, you mentioned the fuel immediately around the house, which ties into a extremely important concept, which gets called different things in different places, but I think it's mostly getting, getting called zone zero now, um, which are the sort of thinking about the five feet immediately around your house, which is the place where those embers are going to they're going to hit the side of the building and they're going to sort of bank in, in that area right around the house. Could you talk a little bit about the importance of the zone zero concept? Mm -hmm. So defensible space has really been about fuel modification out to 30 feet. And then if you're so fortunate to have a bigger property out to 100 feet, known as zone one for 30 feet and zone two from 30 to 100 feet. And the goal has been really to create a defendable space where uh, the vegetation has been um, maintained such that fire doesn't carry or will have sort of low flame height overall flame length um, if you get ignition coming from the outside towards the building. Um, and that's great. That's super important. And that's how we address most of the average fire exposures. But that issue of embers being able to you know, be moved through the through the wind uh, and carried over that uh, zone, those zones have really prompted an awareness that the area immediately adjacent to the building and around um, any attached stairs and decks is particularly vulnerable. And so if there are flammable materials uh, right next to the house, um, embers can basically land in that and have a, a direct spot fire adjacent to the building. Um, so you'll see that defensible space codes are changing in California, changing for everyone um, to, to adjust to a new what's called zone zero. So you have zero, one, two, one, two, so it'll be three zones. Um, and, you know, the, the strong recommendation is to essentially put your walkways closer to your buildings and your gardens and your landscaping a little farther out. Um, Scott and I talk about, you know, trying to visualize what would happen if embers landed next to the building. You know, would you be comfortable? Would you feel okay about ignition there? Uh, or um, would ignition be prevented because there's nothing that's um, combustible in that location? Yeah, one of the uh, things I use frequently, I, I stole from Yana uh, that she used in, a, in an evaluation that uh, we actually did some filming at a while back, which is just imagine yourself with a a book of stick matches in your hand um, and sort of go through the mental exercise of, of lighting them and throwing them at, at your house as you walk around. 
Um, and if the first five feet around your house feel comfortable in that exercise, you've done a good job creating zone zero. Uh, and if you see places where they would wedge or piles of leaves around the base or uh, you know any anything else, uh, a, something that's not well-maintained, that's got some dry material in the middle of it that you, you think, huh, that wouldn't go well if I threw a match there. Well, that's an area to improve and, and get ready. Um, so do you recommend people actually lighting and throwing matches, or is this purely a theoretical exercise? Let's be clear. Let, let, let's look, clarify that this is, <laughs> this is a theoretical. This is an imagine yourself doing it, but don't really do it. Don't try this at home. Yeah, don't actually throw matches at your house. Don't, don't, don't do it. But the concept is if you could be comfortable doing that, you'd be great. <laughs> but if there's something that concerns you or, or if you were to fast forward after three more months without rain, you know, what will be the condition of the vegetation uh, at that point? How would you feel? Uh, or maybe you were out of town for a couple of weeks and then your ability to maintain uh, that vegetation changes or uh, you're in the middle of the drought and water curtailments happen and you no longer have the sufficient water to be able to to manage that vegetation and then it's uh, moisture content changes considerably and it's much more flammable. So um, there's a lot of reasons to to implement zone zero um, and you know it, you know in addition to that there's the the recognition it's a lot easier to maintain your building lot less insect damage and other kinds of pest issues when you've got a little more airflow around the building. Those are all, all good additive benefits. Um, I do recognize that it means some aesthetic changes and, you know, I know that's not going to come easy, but we've got folks like the master gardeners uh, that are available to help people kind of revisualize, you know, what the aesthetic can look like. And it doesn't mean no plants on your, on your property. It just means putting them in a different place than you did before. Well, and how much of a difference does it make if they're well-watered plants? Well, I mean, that's the challenge. And um, it depends on the plant itself. Like the plant may um, may shed old branches and hold on to leaf leaves and needles and, you know, bark and other things and slough that off. And that accumulates at the base of the, the plant, which can be an additional problem. Um, so, you know, it's not just no plant. It's not just a plant. Uh, every plant has sort of different issues. Um, and it's hard, I think, for people to understand that. I mean, I start with, let's, how about Scott and I each buy, buy lavender. Uh, everybody knows what lavender looks like. Really beautiful French garden. I mean, we all want to put some lavender. Um, Scott's great at it. He maintains that. He prunes it. He trims it. He cuts it back. Uh, he waters it. And, you know, me, I, I work too much. And... Um, I've run out of water and I haven't maintained it. And that plant goes from being something that's very lush and supple to very woody and um, carrying a lot of dead material. So it's, you know, it, there's a lot in the cultural care piece of how we maintain plants. Um, and so, you know, take that into consideration. You know, and additionally, the, the standards are changing for California. So um, I would suggest that people just start to get comfortable with the concept and, and the insurance industry is definitely on board with, with Zone Zero and um, we may see the insurance industry actually do more for um, encouraging the development of Zone Zero than, than the actual defensible space inspector process does. Encourage is a very generous word. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Encourage with a big stick. Um, so we are getting close to the end of time and I want to um, jump in quickly and bring up a resource that uh, we've put together to help people get ready for this coming fire season um, 
And that is if you go to our website, firesafemendocino.org, and the um, there's a menu across the top, and the one of the first the first thing next to the home page is safeguard your home. And the first thing under safeguard your home is preparing for fire. Uh, and that was our attempt to throw together um, all of the all of the main steps recommended uh, to get ready for fire season in one place. Uh, so you can get some summaries of of the what we call the six steps to getting ready uh, at the top of that page. Um, and then there's a lot of links that you can follow uh, to get more in depth with anything you want to work on further. And I want to just do a quick rundown of those. Um, and Yana, if you want to jump in with any supplemental talk about any of them as we go along, please do. Um, the first one is just being signed up for alerts. And that's just sort of the common sense point that knowing it's better to know what's going on and have the best information available. Um, and we live in a really modern technological world, and there's a lot of different ways to do that. Uh, Mendocino County has two different alert systems that they recommend you be signed up for. Uh, they also have their own emergency management website uh, where you can look up what your evacuation zone is. So if you know your zone and you hear it on the radio, you know, you, know, you hear us them announcing zone AB3 is on a warning status, you'll know whether that's you or not. Um, and then there's a whole bunch depending on um, you know, how thorough you want to be. There are a bunch of other layers you can follow. There's uh, a download called Watch Duty um, that does a great job of monitoring things. And um, all of those things only do so well if you're fairly well connected. So there are areas in the county where we have very poor internet and other connections. And if you're in one of those areas, um, We'd also strongly recommend that you, you know, connect with your neighbors and find out what kind of alert system they have locally. Um, our website has connections to and, and stories about a few different areas in Mendocino County that um, that develop their own local communications networks that are super robust. And if you're in an area where you can't really rely on getting those cellular alerts, uh, you may want to dig into those as well. Um, we've got examples up there from Brook Trails, which has an amazing alert system, uh, as does Ridgewood. Uh, Greenfield Ranch has got their own radio system uh, going that's sort of adapted to the terrain there. Um, so uh, there's sort of multiple layers of, of ways you can get connected. Um, and that's a good thing to read through. And there's also a video uh, link to the Mendocino County Office of Emergency Services sort of stepping you through how to get signed up for county alerts. So that's step one is know what's going on. And uh, you can always stay tuned to KZYX. That's, you know, thank you. That's one I forgot. And the other one is another thing on that list is knowing which radio stations and resources actually have local news uh, that can help you through those situations. Um Step two in it is having an emergency plan for everyone in your family. And if you have animals or livestock, that includes them. Um, and there's a bunch of parts to that, but it's pretty simple. You know, if you're in an area where uh, you don't know your evacuation routes or you might have an evacuation route down, a, one of the most dangerous things is to head down a, how dead a road where you don't know it's going in an emergency. Uh, that's how a lot of people end up trapped and in trouble. So um, knowing your evacuation routes, um, if there's any of them you haven't been on them before, having tested them and knowing what the conditions are and making sure your vehicle's good for it, uh, having your to-go kit ready, 
uh, understanding how to prep your house. And um, on that link, you know, there's a lot of good resources around that. Uh, Cal Fire's Ready, Set, Go. Uh, if you just Google Ready, Set, Go, uh, it'll it'll take you to a wealth of information about uh, about getting ready. Uh, and we also have a click to a handy one-page checklist uh, that uh, on that page um, that we borrowed from someplace. I'm not sure where we borrowed it from, uh, but their logo is on there, and it's got these sort of essentials to pack and what to be prepared to wear, uh, how to prep with your family and make sure you have an out-of-the-area contact, how to have your vehicle ready, how to prep the inside and the outside of your home. Yeah, Yana just shared... Um, the miracles of modern technology. Scott and I are in the studio. Yana's on Zoom. Zoom has chat. And Yana just shared a really interesting list. Six things to do in six hours in advance of a wildfire evacuation to help you and your family this summer. Yana, do you want to go through that real fast? Yeah, I just want to say there's a lot people can do right at that last minute that makes a real difference. And I mean, number one, just pay attention to the alerts. And the moment you get that feeling that you need to get out of there, get out of there. Um, but often it can be the case that you know, you're know you a day or two away from a potential evacuation and you're fretting and trying to figure out what to, what to do to be prepared in that moment. Um, and so we put together some things like three things in three weeks, um, which are some of the basic stuff that Scott was just talking about. But what do you do in that last phase? And you know, so here's a couple thoughts. Make sure you close the windows, pet doors and skylights. I mean, you wouldn't be surprised that that is a hard thing to do, but a lot of people leave those open. Um, also move inside the patio cushions, brooms, and doormats. Um, I'd also tie open the wooden gates. If you haven't changed that attachment point of the gate to the house, we'll tie it open so that um, you won't have fire come from the gate to the house. Um, you know, here's an interesting one on the August fire. Uh, I have a cabin and one of the things that really struck me when I got to the cabin, which had to defend itself on its own and only ended up being about five miles away from the August fire. Uh, when I got there, there was a plume of ash underneath my front door that had gone into the house. It was dry and cold, uh, so it, it didn't it didn't carry embers, um, but it, it could have. And so what I do now when I leave my cabin is I actually put some metal tape right at the base of my door uh, just to seal it up because I know I don't have a perfect transition point there. But um, this is kind of in the mode. Like I now have a warning spot of where the issues are. If you have a barbecue and a you know propane tank, you can relocate the propane tank away from the house. Um, and then here's one, stage buckets of water uh, in visible locations. Uh, and then, you know, really importantly, dress for the evacuation. Cotton clothes, sturdy shoes, a hat, face protection, leather gloves, you know, all those things. Uh, and I think we all learned from, you know, the Redwood Valley case that evacuation can be really difficult. And so you might have to go through a neighbor's place, um, might be worth having some bolt cutters or some way to get out a way that you don't normally get out, especially for those of us that live in really rural locations. So being aware of what, um, what route we might need to go, and it might be different than the normal way we would think about leaving the property. So being in condition to do that, not in flip-flops and not in, you know, synthetic clothes and, you know, all of that stuff. Not barefoot. Not barefoot. I mean, it's better to be, get out. That's the first thing. But if you can have all that stuff ready to go so it's easy for you to be prepared, um, it's well worth it. Well, we are almost at the end of our show. Scott, do you want to quickly get through the rest of those six steps? 
Yeah, um, let me just so they're all on the website. There's a lot of depth there, and we may pick the up the Mendocino County Fire Safe Council website. Yep, Mendocino County Fire Safe Council org. We may well pick up the rest of them uh, when we have uh, Luke Kendall, the new Mendocino Unit Fire Chief, on for our next show because those are topics that um, he he may be. Um, interested in covering as well. Uh, the first one, just to go through them quickly, is to make your home as easy to defend as possible. There are only so many fire trucks to go around and so many rescuers, and they're going to go to the homes that they can most easily defend. So making it inviting for them uh, can do you a lot of good. Um, and the next two things are things we've been talking about a fair lot on the show already, um, and they're a continuous process, continually improving your home hardening and continually improving and maintaining your defensible space. And we talked about a lot of the core pieces of those already in the show today. Um, and we also talked about the last one, which is helping plan and prepare your community, uh, working with your neighbors, making sure you're part of a neighborhood fire safe council, um, and really helping the people who need help getting their structures ready, who can't do it all on their own. And that could be as simple as helping um, an elderly neighborhood get signed up for the Mendocino County Fire Safe Council's free defensible space program, um, if, you know, just pointing out to people who might need that in your neighborhood. Um, and for what it's worth, we've got a bonus item on there, which is to learn how to not start fires, uh, because most wildfires are started by something that people do. So we can help ourselves out a lot by just not starting the next fire. Uh, and I'll point out one more thing about the website, and we'll hold a drawing for this after our next radio show, I think. But we also have a quiz uh, that's on that website uh, that you can take to see how much of the material you absorbed and if you take it. Uh, we will um, we'll be doing a drawing from everybody who's taken the quiz to give away an emergency evacuation kit. Cool. Well, that is the end of our hour. Thank you so much, Yana Valakovic from uh, UC Cooperative Extension for joining us today. And uh, Scott Craddy, Executive Director of Mendocino Fire Safe Council. We will be back in two weeks on June 21st with the very last in this limited series of the Mendocino County Fire Safe Council Hour. And as Scott just said, we're going to be joined by our new Cal Fire Mendocino Unit Chief, Luke Kendall. So tune in. Thanks for joining us today. And if you haven't already, get out and vote. Thanks, everybody. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.